We're in a series called Together, which is based on our values as a church at King's, and it's really the kind of church that we want to be. And it's based on the Antioch Church, which we've seen as a model church for many years, and we've been looking at it through Acts chapters 11, 13, 15. Today we're going to be back in Acts chapter 11, and we're going to look at another value. Well, what we've been doing is going through the different sort of commitments we have or the values, the things we really treasure and prize as a community. And we've looked at community and looked at mission and looked at being committed to generosity and mercy towards people who don't have very much or who are vulnerable in some way. And then a couple of weeks ago with Scott, we looked at the value, our commitment to the word of God. And this week, we're going to be looking at the value of discipleship, discipleship. And so if you could turn to Acts chapter 11, discipleship, the the idea of learning from or imitating or copying or being apprenticed to the Lord Jesus. That's what discipleship is in Christian language. So let me start by asking you a a question to introduce this idea. Who, Who are you following? If you had to pick five people who someone else would say of you, oh, you really remind me of them. You're really, you have been very shaped by that person in your life. And you had to pick a list of five who would be on your list? And it could be all kinds of different people, but who are the people whose ways and lifestyle habits and choices, and maybe sometimes even turns of phrase or mannerisms, but people sometimes see in you, they say, oh, I can see that person in you, or I can see you've picked that up from them. Who are those, who are the key five people like that in your life? I'll start to illustrate it. I'll start with two people who aren't here because it's easier to use because they're my sons. So the older one here is Zeke and the younger one here is Sam and they're my boys and they make it quite easy to see this, what it looks like to have been shaped by and influenced by a bunch of different people. Now at one level both of these boys are very, very influenced by their parents, their mum and dad. If you've met them and a number of you have, people will often say to me or to Rachel, yeah, they they really look like you or that mannerism really reminds me of or that face he just made or the way he says that really reminds me of. So they're very shaped by their parents and and we all are to some measure actually, even if we don't know our parents and and all of us who who did, when we're brought up by someone, they form us in all sorts of ways, even when we don't really want them to, but we are still influenced by them. And so in the case of my sons, my sons like me, stub their toes with extraordinary frequency, like far more than you'd think it was possible, because that's what I do. And I don't think it's genetic. I don't think that's somewhere in our DNA somewhere. I think they've just been shaped by me and they walk around the house too fast and don't wear slippers and collapse in agony on a regular basis. That's what happened. Now, the other day I was at a football match and Zeke was playing and Sam, the little one, was watching and a woman I'd never seen before came up to me and said, excuse me, do you mind me asking, is your surname Wilson? And I said, yes, it is. And she said, well, I can see in, by looking at your five-year-old that he must be the son of Rachel Wilson, who I knew 10 years ago. So I'm thinking, you haven't seen anyone in our family for 10 years, you've never met me, and you can even then tell that this child who wasn't even born at the time must be related to Rachel. Because He's been formed by her. He's been influenced by her. He's been shaped by her. He looks like her and so on. So that's an obvious example. You you follow, in some ways, your parents. Many of us do. On another level, these boys are following their friends. They're shaped or influenced by popular kids at school, just kids in their class. I regularly catch them making a face or using a phrase that I know they didn't get from us. They picked it up from somebody else. And sometimes that's a challenge and sometimes it's perfectly fine. And adults do that too. Right? You, you and I are probably shaped by, we are influenced by, we are picking up the habits of 
other people in our social circle who particularly more prominent or noisy or popular people who we might be drawn towards, we often imitate them in the way we speak. Far more consciously, my boys are deliberately trying to learn from people. They are saying, we want to learn, you know, spend hours practicing tricks to try and be able to be like a Liverpool footballer or something. And they'll just practice over and over again to try and learn how to copy somebody. And they might be, do the same with YouTubers or you know, musicians or whoever it is. And as you can see from the picture, you've got another layer, which is that Sam, the little one, is obviously following his brother because you can see even from his hair and so on, he just wants to kind of look and be a bit like his brother. And my boys in that sense are continually learning from people and following them. They're, they're saying, I want to be a bit more like that person. Sometimes it's very deliberate, like with football skills. Sometimes it's much more subtle. They're not even aware how much they've been shaped by so-and-so, but they are being you could say, discipled by a whole range of people. There's a bunch of people in their lives and yours and mine who are conforming us to their likeness, whether we want them to or not, because of the degree of influence they have over us and the amount of time we spend imitating them and being shaped by their ways. Now, that's what discipleship is. So, know, who are you following? Who are you copying? Who, are you, who do people stop you and say, do you know what? When you said that, it really reminded me of X. Who's X? Right, that's what discipleship is. A disciple is somebody of whom you would say, you have been so shaped and influenced by this person. You are being uh, influenced and drawn into their orbit. And I regularly see you and think, yeah, you remind me of them. And Jesus called the church to make disciples of all nations. That is, to go out into the whole world and summon the world to become followers of, learners from, imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that people would say, do you know what, you really remind me of him. That's what a disciple is. That's what we're talking about when we speak of discipleship. It happens informally at a cultural level all the time, but there is a the mandate of the church is to go into the world and say, hey, I want to draw you to become imitators of him, to become followers or apprentices of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And as you observe him and are transformed by him, you will be conformed into his likeness so people think you resemble him. Let's read Acts chapter 11 and beginning at verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to nobody except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the word of God. There's a common misunderstanding out there, and if you've been in the church, you may have come across it, for, uh, you've been around for a while, you may have come across it, but the common misunderstanding about the words disciple and Christian, right? If you've been around for a while, you may have heard people talk in Christian circles as if disciples 
are more serious, deeper, more substantial versions of Christians, right? So Christians are two a penny. Anybody can be a Christian. There's billions of Christians. Disciples are serious people who take their faith radically and they're committed and they pursue the things of God. So we often hear people say things like, that's all very well seeing people become Christians. What we really need are disciples, right? You often hear that kind of comment. I've heard that many times. Or Christianity is easy. What this church really needs to work on or what the Western church needs to work on is discipleship. You see, so Christianity is that simple, basic. Yeah, okay, fine. It's very easy. What we really want is discipleship. Now, I know what people mean. I think. I, th- I know what people mean when they talk like that. What they mean is we don't just want bums on seats, crowds, people sitting there going, eh. we want people who are genuinely following Jesus with their whole lives. And I'm passionately committed to that. That's what my whole life is about. It's trying to help form Christians to become more like Christ and to do the same myself. But what they mean is we want mature, zealous, deep believers, not just pew fillers. And I totally get that. I'm absolutely committed to it. But the fascinating thing about the text we've just read is that it talks in the complete opposite way about disciples and Christians. Did you notice that? It's really weird. In in the New Testament, disciple is the generic term for a garden variety follower of Jesus. The word disciple is used 260 times in the New Testament. Very, very common word. But the word Christian appears just three times in the whole New Testament. It's a very different sort of way. It's, a, it's actually not the normal word they used at all. They talk about the disciples or the brothers and sisters or beloved, loads of terms. Christian's actually very unusual. And if anything, Christian is the serious heavyweight word in contrast to disciple, which is a much more everyday term. So in verse 26, we read, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It's like these guys were so, in Antioch, were so like Christ that people referred to them as Christians or Christianoi, the Jesus-y people, right? Christies, you might say. People who, re- I know Christian now is just like a, well, it's a religion, you know, a Muslim or a Christian. It's a very common term. But in this world, that's not how the word was functioned, right? Disciples was the word they would normally use. And then Christians was, people would look at them from outside the church and say, wow, you guys are just obsessed with Jesus. And you talk about him all the time and you look and sound like him. So you're like Christies, Christianoi. Christians. It's as if people said, these guys aren't just disciples, they're Christians. They're like, they really resemble the Lord they claim to worship. They remind me of that crucified Galilean preacher they keep talking about. They talk about Jesus, they talk like Jesus, and they live like him. These disciples are first called Christians. Do you see the contrast? Now, if you think about what discipleship is, that actually makes quite a lot of sense, I think. If you are a disciple, if you learn from and imitate and are formed by and follow an apprentice to somebody, you would expect yourself to become more like them. So you'd expect almost becoming a Christian to be the end point of a journey of being a disciple. You'd expect if I'm a disciple for a while, I'm going to become so like this person, they think I look like them. So I don't think we should think about disciples as an unusually deep, heavyweight sort of Christian. The word disciple just means a learner. So if this is your first day of the Christian life, you are just as much a disciple as the person who's been following him for 80 years. Disciple is not sort of special status. It's like that's what we all are. We're learners, followers, apprentices. We're all learning from the master. And as we learn, we become more like him and people notice. And that's what happened in Antioch. 
that their community and their mission and their generosity and mercy and commitment to the word and all of these other things reminded people of Jesus, so they called them Christians. I think that's an important way to think about it in many ways. And so what we then have to do is to ask the question, okay, so how do disciples get formed so that they become like, more like Jesus? Because that's the goal. That's what Jesus is telling us to do. What does a church or an individual committed to discipleship actually do? Well, let's take the two things that Jesus talked about in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, just to help us here, because in, in Acts, Acts 11, it doesn't actually tell us. Right? It gives this picture of a church, but it doesn't say this is how they caused the disciples to grow so that they became Christians. It doesn't tell us what they did, but Jesus gives, it, gives us pretty clear direction in Matthew chapter 28 and verses 19 to 20. It's a very familiar passage that we often come back to in this church. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So a church committed to discipleship will by and large do what Jesus says here. They will baptize people and they will teach people, right? We, we're doing both of those things across the church today. So at our in-person services today, we are baptizing people across the different services and welcoming people into the Christian life. It's a glorious opportunity. And in a sense, baptism, and we'll talk about teaching in a moment, but baptism is a vital practice for the formation of disciples because baptism encapsulates the entire Christian life. It's like a walkthrough demonstration of the spiritual realities at play in growth in the Christian life. And so if I had said, if we weren't talking about Matthew 28 and I just said to you, so how do you think disciples are made? I think we would say a bunch of things like, well, make reading the Bible, praying and going to church, all those things. Great, we'll talk about that. But Interestingly, Jesus' starting point with make disciples of all nations, he then uses two verbs to explain how that works, baptizing and teaching. And that might not be the first things we'd think of, but Jesus, is, Jesus knows what he's doing. Because as he centers baptism in the process, what he's really saying is in the act of baptizing people and showing people what is happening to them by entering into Christ and his people and his body, the act of baptism will teach you and form you and shape you that, such that you become a disciple. Such, if you basically, your life is a series of living out your baptism. And that's what we're doing across the church today. We're acting out the Christian life in the form of baptism. And this is really the, the nature of the Christian life. Baptism involves a moment of repentance, turning around. It involves some preparation. People getting baptized in our church today will have been to a baptism inquiry that have talked through the, the central ideas of the Christian faith. They will have expressed their commitment to it. They'll have been prepared. They will confess their faith, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we do that in, in a, a lovely way, in a, quite a formal way, actually, that we get people to say, Jesus is Lord. Do you believe Jesus is Lord? And they say, yes, he is the master of my life. There's a statement of faith, the lordship of Christ, and an abandonment of other gods. Say, no, I don't worship other gods. Now I worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they go down into the water, they bury their old life, just as Jesus died and was buried on Good Friday, as we've just celebrated, and then they rise to new life, just as Jesus rose from the grave on Easter Sunday, as we've just celebrated. And so that even the way we do baptisms at our church is acting out the central components of the Christian life, which is that you repent. This happens every day in many ways, doesn't it? You repent of your sin, 
You confess, you may not say it out loud every day, but you make a statement of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your allegiance to him as opposed to other gods. You make decisions that are in line with him being your king and no one else. You put off your old life, you put on the new one, you bury the old, you rise the new. And in some ways, what baptism expresses is like a a portable picture of what your Christian life is meant to be every day. And as we do that on a daily basis, we become more like Jesus. We live out our baptism. Now, there are church traditions in which a lot of other elements are also included, which dramatize this even further. And we don't do all of them in our church, and I think there are good reasons for that, actually. But there are some fascinating examples of churches where they would really try and communicate in even more detail than we do what baptism is and what the Christian life is by the way that they perform a baptism. So one of you, a few of you may have heard me say this before, but in the fourth century in Jerusalem, we read the writings of a, a man called Cyril who's describing how they did baptism. And in their case, they would, they would literally turn and face the west, and, which was the, the darkness because that's where the sun sets. And they would renounce the devil and all his works and spit at him. And then they would turn and face the east, which is the land of the sunrise and represents newness. And they would confess belief in Father, Son and Spirit. Then they'd take off all their clothes. Again, there's a reason we don't do this, but that's what they did. And they'd take off all their clothes, which is like putting off the old self. Paul talks about it like that. And, and then they would get anointed with oil that it had been had demons cast out of it. I know that's not how we do it, but say so you are basically now taking off the old you and you are cleansing yourself of any demonic influence. You're going down into the water. And then when you come out the water, you put on new white clothes and you're anointed with oil, the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then from there, you go into the church and you have your first communion. You share the, the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist with the rest of the church. And in that kind, you see, it's quite a dramatic way of doing it. And in that process, what they're trying to do is say, this is the nature of the Christian life you've been drawn into. You are renouncing your old gods. You're confessing your allegiance to new ones. You're putting off the old you. You're putting on the new you. You're walking in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You're receiving, uh, the, you've been have the darkness driven out from you and Satan has no hold on you and it's only Christ and his spirit over you. And then you walk into the church and share communion together. And that is a picture of the entire Christian life encapsulated into a walking, talking, breathing model of it in front of you when you get welcomed into the Christian life in baptism. And Christian discipleship is basically a matter of living that out. That's why Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing, teaching. Because baptism is such a central practice for Christians because it puts on display the whole Christian life. And you might say to people who just recently been married, or maybe been married a long time, you know, if you've been, your marriage is a question of living out your vows. I've said that to people, right? You made this commitment to have and to hold in sickness and in health from this day, all that. Now, right now, today, 17 years in, 35 years in, one week in, you're hitting a bump in the road. Your marriage is a question of living out that vow. Or you might say to a doctor, you know, your medical practice is a matter of living out your Hippocratic oath to do no harm. That's really all you're doing. You're, you're saying, I've made this oath, and now today I'm just living out what I promised I'd do. Baptism's like that in the Christian life. That discipleship is a, a matter of being baptised and then living out what baptism means for the rest of your life. Renouncing sin, confessing Christ, putting off the old, putting on the new, anointing with the Holy Spirit, sharing the Lord's Supper together, being part of a church. 
that those things are really living out and acting out what your, what your baptism means. So a church committed to discipleship will be committed to baptism and all it represents. And as I say, we're doing baptizing loads of people across the church today, praise God. And a church committed to discipleship will also be committed to teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's what Jesus said. So if you're going to make disciples, you're going to baptize a lot of people and you're going to teach a lot of people to obey what I, Jesus, told you to do. Now, different churches will do that in different contexts. Right? In some church contexts, you will emphasize a big corporate gathering. Some will emphasize small groups. Some will emphasize family devotions. Right? That's In some traditions of the church, that's a very prominent, that's probably a lot of us in the first lockdown had to learn how to do that when we wouldn't necessarily do that much of it. Some would emphasize one-to-one -one relationships. Some would emphasize personal habits, just me or my own. Some would emphasize a combination of those things. And there's a variety of different ways in which we can be taught and discipled by Jesus' commands, right? So we formal public preaching like this in the context of a gathered church, right? Teaching, exhortation, you read the word of God, you declare what it says, you proclaim it, you teach, you explain it, hopefully, so people understand it. You summon people to obey it. That's, that's one way of doing it. That's not the sum total of discipleship at all, but it's an important part of it. Other people will be discipled through what you might call corporate liturgy. That is that the things the church say and sing and pray when we're together form our lives as disciples. So the prayers, the songs, the creeds, the Lord's Supper, the acting of the church together saying we're doing this, even baptizing people actually. Those things are ways of the, in which the church is discipled by and shaped by and taught Jesus' teaching. And other churches, a lot of emphasis on a set catechism, a form of words, a way of saying, what's the answer to this question? And then the person's taught what the answer is. Maybe based on the, the creed, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer. That's very common in a lot of churches. We, some might use theological courses. I run one for the Catalyst course. A number of our leaders go on it. And it's a, a really, for me, it's a good way of just teaching people a bit deeper what the Bible means. And we do that in our groups and we do it in all sorts of contexts in the church. There are informal group discussions that take place about the meaning of biblical passages, which happen all the time in the church. We're, we're gathering in groups. It's not particularly formal. There's a bit of guidance, but mostly it's the people of God together saying, what does this passage mean? How do we apply it? There are family prayers people reading scripture together, talking about what they mean, praying together. There are, in many cases, what you might call a teacher-pupil relationship, which is where a mature Christian trains a newer one in the things of God for a season of their life. Now, that's, that's often what people mean when they talk about being discipled in modern English, I've found. If you say, I want to be discipled, people often think about it that way, like a teacher-pupil one-to-one thing. It's not the only way of being discipled, but it can be very effective. And then, of course, there's personal time spent reading scripture, and to supplement the reading of scripture, but not replace it, reading good Christian books. And those, that, that's, in, I find, invaluable, particularly in a culture like ours where people can read. If, you, if, the, if you're in a culture where no one reads, then obviously reading the Bible on your own or reading Christian books, not really an option. But in a culture like ours where there's loads of excellent theological material available and where people can read and it's relatively cheap, that's a very good way of people forming. That's huge for me. A lot of my Christian growth comes through engaging on my own with the word of God in the morning and reading often another Christian book to help me understand it. And we're doing two Christian books just this year. 
did God of All Things last year. We're going to do a series based on a book called Gentle and Lowly. We've recommended before. It's an outstanding book coming up in the next few months. And they're ways really of trying to introduce the church to great resources that will help you grow in your Christian life. Now, that's a bunch of different, I don't know, eight different ways in which people can grow in their understanding of what Jesus taught. And there are probably others. And the ones that we find best work for us will depend on various factors like our family context or our personal, our level of education or literacy or wealth or personal space, our work commitments, all kinds of things like that. But here's the key point. None of that does any good if you don't do it. If you don't do what Jesus said. Right? So Jesus doesn't just say teaching them everything I have commanded you. As in, so now make pe sure people know all the stuff I said. No, he doesn't say that. He says teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. Discipleship doesn't just happen when you hear the word and then go, oh great, now I've become like Christ. Discipleship happens as you hear the word and put it into practice, you become more like Christ because the kingdom of God is like a wise man who built his house on rock. He, he built his house on the word of God. If you hear the word and put it into practice, you are like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then when the wave and the storms came, you didn't shake. Whereas if you hear the words and you don't put them into practice, you're like an idiot who built his house on the beach. And as soon as the wave came, he collapsed because he heard it, but he didn't do it. And so the summons of Jesus is, I want you to go and baptize to make disciples, but I also want you to go and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And that, friends, is what happened in Antioch. That's what this church did somehow. People didn't just know what Jesus had said. They actually did it. They copied Jesus. They talked like him. They walked like him. They made the same sort of, sorts of decisions about their well-being, about their about their finances, about their sex lives, about everything. They said, this is being submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And if I need to sacrifice something for me in order to help them, I'll do that. They lived with a mercy, a generosity, and a compassion, a sense of mission and community and grace and all of these things we're looking at. And they did that to such an extent that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. People looked at this group of people, baptizing, teaching, and all the things they did. And they said, you know what? These people remind me of somebody. They remind me of that crucified Galilean preacher. These guys are Christianoi. They are Christies. They look like him. They smell like him. I can see Jesus in them, whether I like that and think it's very attractive or whether I hate that because I think Jesus is an, an idiot. I'm still drawn to the fact that they resemble him. They have, these disciples have become Christians. And may the same, by the grace of God, let's pray that the same may be true of us. Should we pray together? Heavenly Father, we ask for your spirit to come to us now and to empower us, those of us who are believers, to live out our baptism. Lord, I pray you would give us your spirit to enable us to walk in freedom from sin, to renounce the darkness, to embrace the light, to stand on the truth, to put off the old, to put on the new, to rise in unison, to commune with other believers, to be part of the church. You would empower us to live out our baptism and to obey everything you've commanded in your holy word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.